hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another one of our Books with Hooks segment. You've got Carly and Cece here today. A reminder, this segment is an unscripted program. Our conversations have been edited and condensed, and they are not a full picture of our feedback or conversation directly with each author. As always, refer to our written notes for the fulsome picture. And today we're going to kick off with Cece reading the first query letter. Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, The Shit Podcast is easily the highlight of my week, keeping me motivated and delivering golden nuggets of wisdom. Your one night only and first five pages seminars have brought my writing to a new level, while CC's take on the MDQ as it pertains to romance, always the intersection of love and trust, helped me get over a major hurdle in my plot and I will be eternally grateful. Without this intro, this query letter clocks in at 381 words. I'm seeking representation for Keep Your Secrets, my 80,000-word romance novel focusing on women in government balancing love with relatable career and personal struggles in the vein of Allie Hazelwood's steminist novel, Love on the Brain, with the DC backdrop of Casey McQuiston's 
red, white, and royal blue. As an ambitious 20-something assistant to a top White House official, Lenny Davis knows that the only way to make it in politics as a woman is to work twice as hard and deal with quadruple the bullshit as her male counterparts. Her hard work pays off when she's selected as co-lead organizer of her boss's upcoming trip to Europe for the most important trade negotiations in decades. All she has to do is cover up his increasingly inappropriate behavior in the midst of his wife's presidential campaign or risk becoming the subject of a full-blown sex scandal. Things get even more complicated when she has to work with Sam Jackson, the handsome and irritating lead Secret Service agent on her boss's detail, the same Sam Jackson who she accidentally kissed at last year's holiday party who doesn't seem to take anything in life serious except his next conquest, and who can read her like an open book but seems to be keeping secrets of his own. Despite her suspicions and the risk to her career, she gets closer to Sam, learning that maybe he isn't a playboy after all, but instead is battling his own pressures of living up to his famous father's reputation. But while in Europe, Sam's true reason to get close to Lenny is revealed, dashing her attempts to avoid scandal and keep her heart in one piece. To save herself from becoming a national punchline, Lenny must find a way to trust Sam, the only person who can help clear her name, and the one who broke her heart. This story is loosely inspired by my own experience as a 20-something White House staffer, when sadly none of the cute Secret Service agents would flirt with me. When I'm not writing fan fiction about my own life, I am chasing after my two naughty dogs, two even naughtier children, and one well-behaved husband, or draining my soul in the legal profession. Thank you for your consideration, Jessica Link. Thank you so much, Cece. Okay, tell us the word count and what you thought of this one. So the author was kind enough to include the word count. Without the first paragraph, it's clocking in at 381 words, and I do think it's fair to remove that paragraph after all that is specific to the podcast. I just want to say that it's such a sweet note to get. Thank you so much for your kind words about, you know, our work here. We take it very seriously. We are passionate and proud of it. And so we really appreciate hearing this. I think the premise is really cute. This sounds like one of those novels where you're not supposed to take things too seriously. You're supposed to go in for all the vibes and all the feels. And you know it's going to end up being okay, but you'll still feel stressed along the way as she faces obstacles. So, you know, in terms of like vibes, which is something that's really hard to define and pin down, but you know it when you see it, the vibes are great, right? Like great vibes, awesome vibes. I will offer you my notes, but I do want to, I think, first acknowledge something here. I am not the kind of reader of this type of book because my brain is too cynical for it. I, I, I try to poke too many holes in things. Actually, I don't try. I just do it. I poke too many holes in things. And you'll see what I mean in a minute. And so because of that, you know, whenever I'm watching like Hallmark movies or like rom-coms that are a bit on the softer side, I'm always going like, that's not plausible. That would never happen. And my friends are all telling me like, it doesn't matter, Cece. That's not the point, you know? It's it's about the feelings. So again, take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt. 20-something assistant. Why can't we know her age? I'm always wondering about that. It wouldn't bother me, would not stop me from reading. This is no way a major issue, but I'm always like, you know your character's age, don't you? So like maybe tell us the age. I don't know. Maybe there's an intention behind this, but I would want to know. The line that said that she has to cover up his increasingly inappropriate behavior. I'm wondering like, is the behavior against her? 
I didn't think so at first because the word cover up made me think that she's a third party. But then the line about her becoming the subject of a sex scandal kind of threw me off. So I'm like, what does that mean? That feels that feels like a big serious thing, right? So I, I guess I wanted clarity on that. I'm also confused on like who she works for and what his role is. Like, because there's a mention that her boss, that his wife has a presidential campaign. So is she the assistant to the first gentleman? If not, maybe it's the first presidential campaign that his wife is going to be entering into. And so maybe he has this other role. I actually know what the role is because I've read the pages. But at this point, when I was writing these notes, I didn't know. And I was thinking to myself, okay, maybe he's, I don't know, Secretary of State, and his wife is running for president. So that was confusing to me. Like I did not know. And the confusion bothered me a little bit. If there's any way to clarify, I would. Confusion's just bad, right? Because it makes our brain stop. And it makes our brain think about what it could be as opposed to what's in front of us. A plausibility issue I had. And like I said, ignore me, please ignore me, but I'm going to share. This Playboy Secret Service agent, like Secret Service agents are incredibly serious people. Like they are so trained. They are trained to be almost robotic and they have to be, right? Like that is how serious their jobs are. And so I don't know. I was like, is he a Playboy? I think, okay, I think Playboy and I think reckless, reckless and carefree and just loosey-goosey. And I don't know, do people agree? Is this also what, how people think of the word playboy? And so I don't know. I don't know if playboy is the right way to characterize him. You know, he could be a womanizer. That is fair. But like playboy to me just means something that a secret service agent would not be. But maybe that's the thing, right? And then it also made me wonder, like, does he take his job seriously? Because she says he doesn't take anything seriously. And let's face it, the man has an important job, right? Like he's supposed to save people. He's supposed to protect people. That's a big job. And then towards the end, there's a line that says she has to attempt to avoid scandal, right? And then right after, he has to help clear her name. So I'm wondering, did the scandal happen or not? That to me felt like mixed signals. Like, was there a scandal? And if so, she'll have to clear her name. Or is she trying to avoid the scandal? I guess because I didn't know exactly what we were talking about, I didn't understand. And so when it comes to these confusions, I would clarify. And when it comes to me having an issue with the Playboy, I don't know, maybe maybe listen to Carly's opinion. And other listeners, if you want to chime in on our socials when this airs, please let us know. Do you think a Secret Service agent could also be a Playboy? Do you think reckless when you think Playboy? Controversial questions that the shit no one tells you about writing. Oh, and as a final note, I want to say I love that this is based on your own personal experience. I know not the flirting, but the job, because it makes me feel like there's going to be lots of authenticity. So I'm really excited about that. Carly, what did you think? All right. Well, I was able to suspend disbelief a little bit in terms of like having fun with it, but I'll start at the top. So I actually don't think I've heard the term steminist before. I don't know if I'm like, if I just, I don't know, I, I'm on the internet a lot. So I'm just surprised I haven't heard the word steminist. I thought that was a really cool way of, of describing that. So if that was your creation, that's cool. If this is an industry term that I just don't know, also cool. Another book where this doesn't have to be a comp, but when I was reading this, it reminded me in some ways, I think actually your comps are great, but if you haven't read Joe Piazza's Charlotte Walsh Loves to Win, that's a really fun kind of woman in politics book. And I, it's from the past few years and I would highly recommend that. But yeah, that wouldn't be a comp here, just as a fun book recommendation for everybody. Okay. I really like the kind of like voicey sassiness of this query letter. It gets like full marks for me in the author bio also. So like super voicey. So I really, I thought you got that balance perfect. So I was very, very happy to hear that. I will say 
it was all just a touch too vague for me in a lot of different categories. I had notes here, which is like, yeah, it, it sounds like she will risk the scandal, but what does this have to do with her? If he gets canned, then she doesn't have a job. Like I have questions like that, just like the domino effect of what's actually happening here. Another note that I had was kind of about the spiciness level. Like usually with romance, you usually tell us if it's like, I don't know, you can make your own kind of qualifiers. If it's like steamy or just like light steam, you know, if there is a way that you want to kind of explain the steam level, I think that would probably be useful unless you're kind of using your comps to do that job, in which case I'm guessing steamy. So I think that could just be a note there because you're talking about sex scandal. So it's like, are we seeing like the sex scandal happen as well as all the flirting? And anyway, yeah, I have a lot of questions about the logistics. But as I always say with query letters, the job of a query letter is to hook an agent. That is the entire job. The entire job is just, hey, can I interest an agent enough to get them to request pages? That is the entire job of a query letter, right? So I think you've done the job, honestly, because it fits in the genre. We have a quirky female character. There's some steam, some tension. There's some stakes involved. So is it perfect? No. Do I think an agent who's looking for something like this would like this pitch? Yes. So that's why I'm like, I I give people full marks for queries like this because it's absolutely not perfect, but that's okay, right? We're human beings. We don't ask anybody to be perfect. I don't write perfect pitch letters, but my pitch letter's job is to get an editor to request the pages so that we can have a conversation once they've read it, right? We are not robots. We are human beings trying to sell art and that's the job here. So in that capacity, it was very voicey and I think on note for the genre, which I thought was great. All right, so Cece, we're going to ask you to summarize the pages now. And before I do, I just want to say that that was such an excellent analysis and I fully agree. The job is to be seductive, not to be perfect. So that's what she's doing here. So that's amazing. Okay, so let's summarize this. So our protagonist, her name is Lenny, is trying to avoid the cameras as she waits for the Secretary of Commerce and the President's Senior Trade Advisor. She speaks to Sam on the phone. Obviously, Sam is the Secret Service agent, and she feels annoyed at the delay. Earlier, she made a mistake, and she needs her boss, that's Pete, to get there soon, or she's worried she'll get fired. So Nikki, who's a co-worker, works just under her, really wanted her job, spots Lenny behind a plant. And Nikki is like in direct contrast with our protagonist. Nikki is polished, wearing a great outfit, you know, looking great. Our protagonist does not feel like she looks like that at all. And Lenny lets her know about the mistake. And Nikki clearly tries to phase her, tries to make her feel like, you know, she might get fired and she might have to work as an intern for the presidential campaign. And Lenny doesn't allow her to phase her too much and tries to focus on the task at hand. And that's when the motorcade arrives with her boss and Sam. All right. Thank you so much for that summary. So give us the rundown and your thoughts on the actual pages as well as the words. Okay, so this was really interesting to me. I'll start from the top. We have what I think is a brilliant setup in some ways. We have a protagonist who is clearly uncomfortable and she has a sense of urgency. And yeah, she's waiting and waiting might seem passive, but it's not passive. Why? Because she talks on the phone with Sam, because Nikki shows up. And through contrast, we realize how she feels about herself, right? Her appearance, her insecurities, the stakes, which are that she might get fired. So really brilliant when it comes to all these boxes that are being checked. So, you know, really good job for the author. I really like that you made her uncomfortable. I like that there's contrast with Nikki. I like there's no name-splaining. Like there wasn't a single instance of name-splaining and I love that. I figured out who everyone was because you were able to give me the information in a way that was subtle. 
right? So I loved that. I love the competition with Nikki because, again, that makes us root for her. So that's really smart. Even details like this takes place in 2008, right? And so there's details like a BlackBerry, you know, like she's using a BlackBerry, not an iPhone. So I thought that was great. Lots of great stuff here. I will say that I think there's room to make it even better. And that's what I will focus on now. The first line here reads, if Lenny Davis had any hope of a career in DC beyond this job, she would have to get her shit together. Now, we are a podcast with salty language in the title. You know, the same language, actually. We are fine with this. We're totally cool with this. A lot of readers are not. A lot of readers are put off by this, especially in the opening. This is not just the sample chapter, the sample material, but it's the first line. So if you know this and you're like, I'm good, great, keep going. I am just sharing in case you don't know, right? Like your readership will be fine with it. I just hope that it's intentional. She is also worried about making the papers because she's wearing a terrible outfit. She does not feel like herself. And if photographers who are there take a picture of her, she might end up on the front page of the Washington Post. I had a question about how her socio-emotional framework is aligned around that. Like when she first started this job, did she know it was a possibility that she would end up in the background of photos? Has that happened before? Is it just a fear? Has it happened to her friend? I wanted a little bit more meat and more context in a way that felt more individual to her relating to the specific fear. Like I said, I do love that she's in an uncomfortable position, but we have a lot of space, like a lot of real estate is being used to describe her predicament. And it just feels like it's on the long side. There's a lot of details of how she came to be wearing a terrible outfit and feeling terrible about herself. And I don't think we need that many details. Like I feel like you can compress it into half. So I would do that. I feel like it'll be pastier if you do that. Again, back to my plausibility issue because it's my brain and my brain can't turn it off. We have a Secret Service agent inside an official car. The man is not alone. We know that they're never alone, right? And he's saying things on the phone like, you're adorable, Davis. You know that? Five, ten minutes tops. And I'm like, mm, that's not how they talk. They have code words. They're code words for each different person. They never say the exact time on the phone because the conversation might be tracked or something. And it just feels so informal. Again, as I say this, I am mindful that there's tons of books out there, tons of movies and TV shows out there that have the same plausibility issue. And all it means is that it's not for my brain, right? But I didn't think it was realistic. I really like that you chose a high stakes problem. Like I said, she might get fired. But then we find out there's even more, right? We find out that they are a trio. So there's Lenny, Nikki, and Johnny. Lenny's the protagonist. Nikki is the beautiful, polished person who's trying to phase her. And Johnny's the third, right? They're a trio of assistants to Pete, who's the national security counselor, to the president. And Johnny and Lenny, the protagonist, are seeing each other, right? So here's my question. How serious is that? She doesn't want Nikki to find out. Does she not want Nikki to find out because it's against the rules? Like, could she get, is that a fireball offense, getting involved with someone? Because she might be Johnny's boss? Like, I don't know. She's Nikki's boss, sort of. So I guess my question is, how serious is this? Because I wanted to know, and I feel like her interiority would reflect that. I don't understand why she offered information to Nikki in such a clear way. Like, she made a mistake. Or Johnny made a mistake and she let it pass. Why did she tell Nikki that? Like she just tells Nikki. In dialogue with Nikki, there's nothing that she's not revealing about the mistake. And that to me did not seem realistic. Wouldn't she play her cards closer to her chest? I really thought she would. As a final note, there's a line that reads, he would be her golden ticket to make the leap from being someone's assistant to the person with an assistant. 
a seemingly impossible task in this economy. I love that she's ambitious, but I wanted her to be specifically ambitious. Like, what are her specific aspirations? I get that any job in which she would get an assistant would be an upgrade, but people dream in specifics. And if her ambition is such a big part of the story, which I love, by the way, I love reading stories about ambitious women, but then I want the ambition to be specific because to me, that's more realistic and more fun and it would get me to feel more invested. So these are my notes on how I feel you can elevate this, but please know I am poking holes because this is so good, right? Like you did a really great job. Carly, what did you think? All right, Cece, that was so deep. I love it. Okay, so let's start with my notes. I had just off the top why this year, right? We start with April 2008. So either this is trying to align in a semi-autobiographical way because it says, you know, loosely inspired by my experience. So potentially that's when you were working there, just a guess. Or we are slightly backdating it for reasons that will reveal itself in the manuscript. I always ask when we are backdating things that it is an intentional choice, not a convenient choice, an intentional choice that serves the story. So I just want to make that point of emphasis here. I will say I liked the opening line with, you know, if Lenny Davis had any hope of a career in DC beyond this job, she would have to get her shit together. I liked it. I mean, it's so funny because like romance novels, again, I don't know how much sex and spice there's going to be on the page. That is to be determined. It wasn't in the opening pages. That's all I know. But swearing, sexual conduct, sexual misconduct, potentially cutting herself into this scandal. I think you have some room to play with language here. So I would say that felt natural to me in terms of the tone of the story. So I would say that I did like that. So the one thing I think that's kind of holding me back for being head over heels with this, because I, as I said, I am willing to suspend disbelief here. I have no problem with that because I think it's just a fun romantic premise. What I do have the issue with is that we are leaning a little bit into chick lit territory in a couple instances that I just kind of want to point out. For me, the instances are when we get into this like physical comedy or this like, you know, physical bit where it's like the clothes are too tight and they don't fit and her heel, you know, all of this kind of like stumbling and the hiding behind the plant and rolling her ankle in the heels like that is very classic chick lit kind of physical comedy. So I would just, again, guard against that a little bit because chiclet is just not really a category that, you know, we talk about as much as being marketable, not to say it doesn't sell or anything like that. It's just not usually high up in terms of marketability, you know, from agents right now. That's all I'll say on that. But this is a romance novel, right? So I just, I don't know, for me, that just stood out a bit as like, mm, it reminded me a little bit of like chiclet from the, you know, the 2000s. And as Cece said, I just think we're spending too much time on the outfit and the polyester and the this. I think the polyester comment is actually really important because that's it's not silk, it's polyester, right? It's a synthetic fabric. It's not a natural fabric. And so we understand that she's in a certain socioeconomic status. What I found really interesting is that she's ambitious. She's from a certain kind of social climbing status. And yet she's getting herself into trouble. She's clearly having you know some interest with somebody at work. You know, we have this typo situation where she's potentially lying. I'm like, I just think I love social climbing plots, like love social climbing plots. I think they're super, super interesting in terms of, you know, our class structure and our understanding of class and our role in the world. I love all of that, especially in a romance novel. But I just wonder, like, why is she, is it just for the sake of the novel? Again, like making her a really interesting character to open up, you know, in this scene with. 
I don't know. I had a lot of questions there. Okay, now for the suspending disbelief part. My favorite part of the sample was actually their little banter and how she communicated with them. I don't know. I just, I thought it was fun. I understand it was silly. I understand that's not how a Secret Service agent would talk. And if we are going to like suspend disbelief, I don't know. I'm like, I think this author did a good enough job for me to just be like, screw it. We'll just run with it. He's going to pull up in the car and he's going to leave the president in the car. He's going to grab her and whisk her away to the storage room closet and like, you know, whatever. I'm fine with that outcome. I think that's a great romantic plot outcome. Cece's fanning herself because she's getting hot from my uh, role play here. But you know what I'm trying to say? Like, I think it's okay to suspend disbelief a little bit. It's just... Can you keep the reader engaged? And for example, I was willing to roll with it. Cece wasn't, right? So that's just a classic example of some people are going to be willing to roll with that outcome and some people won't. And and that's fine. So I don't know. I think there's just so much here that is working so much here that we have both of us have question marks about so to me this is saying like we're close we're on the road to you know you finding success here if you haven't already and obviously we always hope you have but that's kind of where we're landing on this one absolutely and if anyone is out there writing a book about how the secret service agent gets out of the car and ravages someone (laughs) that someone wants to be ravaged in this case of course send it to us because now we want to read that that's on our holiday wish list. I'm writing fan fiction about the fan fiction about the fan exactly, fiction. Exactly, exactly. I love it. Okay, Carly, will you read us the second query letter? Dear Cece, Carly, and Bianca, thank you to all at the shit no one tells you about writing, your inspiration, which has encouraged me to believe that I can write a book. I wish to share this pitch with you, even though I note that neither Cece nor Carly represents children's books. I am hoping that despite this, you will still be able slash willing to offer me some of your amazing insight and feedback. I'm seeking representation for my debut novel, The Dream Zone Quest, a middle grade fantasy adventure, 38,000 words. It's the recent film Slumberland meets Alice in Wonderland with a splash of Narnia. When Daniel's mother is rushed to hospital, he is taken to stay with his great aunt and uncle at their farm. Believing his dad is dead as a result of an accident, he now fears his mum may also die. Daniel feels scared and useless, unable to help his mum. Daniel sees strange lights around a rocky outcrop above the farm where he finds a portal into Seminium. In this strange world, the Samarni work to ensure that children stay safe in their dream adventures. The Samarti ask for Daniel's help to fetch a special nectar from a tree which grows on the far side of the dream zone, where only adults dream and the Samarti cannot reach. The nectar, they hope, will revive the ailing Guadican, the greatest of all the Samarti. Deciding that while his mum is in hospital, he can perhaps do something useful, Daniel agrees to help encouraged and accompanied for the first part of the journey by an inexperienced but well-meaning Torin. As he traverses through Dream Zone, Daniel discovers what his nightmares mean, learns more about his dad's accident, and finds out that dad may still be alive. But before he can complete his quest, he must confront and overcome his nightmare. He has learned a lot in his travels through the Dream Zone. But has his quest saved Guadican, and might it impact his mother's recovery too? This is an uplifting story of friendship, family, overcoming fears, trying to make a difference. I'm retired and live in Doncaster, Yorkshire, UK with my husband, Andrew. We have two adult children and are expecting the arrival of our second grandson any day now. I've been writing for just the sheer joy of it for many years, encouraged by my children who love to listen to stories I created. I have attended local writers groups and enjoyed many writing holidays and courses. When not writing, I enjoy painting, gardening, and choral singing. I have enclosed the first five pages as per your guidance, which I hope leaves you wanting more. Yours sincerely, Rosemary Milliken. Thank you, Carly. What was the word count there and what did you think of the query letter? All right. So Rosemary wrote in for us 447 words, including the initial paragraph. So if we take that out, obviously it's a little bit shorter there. So, okay, let's start at the top here. 
All right, so Dream Zone Quest, the title. It seems specific and yet also vague at the same time, right? So if we separate this out like dream, the word dream, the word zone, and the word quest. I don't know. I think I would have loved a description like the darkened dream zone quest, the sleepy dreams. You know what I'm trying to say? Like we just need something in there because the dream zone quest, to me, it sounds like a video game, to be perfectly honest with you. So I don't know. I think there's some work to do. I think you can keep one or two of these words. I do think it needs to be reworked. I don't think we're quite there yet. Okay, now let's move on to the comps. Slumberland meets Alice in Wonderland with a splash of Narnia. Okay, these are iconic brands that we chose. And so I love that you are ambitious. You're saying, hey, my book is up there with Alice in Wonderland. My book is up there with Narnia. Do I love ambitious writers? Absolutely, yes, I do. Do I think those are the right comps? No, I do not. Because none of these comps are a book within the last five years, right? So we have a film, and I'm always okay comping to films, but I think we have to comp a film with a novel, right? So we have to have a this meets that, right? Or an X meets Y. That's kind of important to me. Or for fans of, you know, blank author. I just think there's a huge opportunity here to just comp something, a book within the last five years. I think it's doable in this category. So I would just really encourage you to seek that out if you haven't found it yet. Okay, so let's get into the plot here. There's a lot of specifics, which normally we are very pro specifics on this podcast. But when we're talking about new realities, new worlds, the specifics have a really important job to play, which is just give us enough to understand at the moment at which we need it. That is the hardest thing to do of all, right? Like that's what we're asking you to do. And I think we get too much too soon. And so I was thinking about this query kind of all day. I read it this morning and we're recording this afternoon. I was honestly been thinking about it all day because I'm like, how do we capture this world do it in a succinct manner and kind of encompass everything. This is why I personally find fantasy novels and science fiction novels the hardest queries to critique because I understand so much goes into the world building and there are stakes, but they're often layered in another reality, which we're always like trying to figure out like how does that reality affect us now in the present with the reader? And there's always that like these worlds kind of colliding and in that impact. And so I love when we found it at the end about his dad might still be alive. That's super, super interesting. I found that very interesting. The idea that like while his mom's still in hospital, he can perhaps do something useful is incredibly passive. So I do think he maybe he thinks like he has to go into this world in order to save his mom. And while he's over there, he discovers his dad is also alive. And like, potentially he can have both of his parents. Like, I mean, to a kid that's feeling like he might be orphaned, that's incredibly powerful. That's the kind of thing that's where I would be leaning. Again, I'm not going to rewrite your book for you or anything like that, because that might not be what your book is about. But that's kind of where I'm getting at with this, which is not passive, super active and bringing these two worlds together should be some of the most important work we're doing in this query letter. I don't really understand, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you because I don't do a lot of science fiction fantasy, you know, what the Guadican is, what the Samarti are in terms of like physical creatures. Are they, you know, are they human-ish? Are they not human-ish? And this is the balance, right? It's like, how specific do we get about what these creatures are? How close is this world to our world in a query letter? Again, I know I'm asking like the most impossible thing of all. So that's kind of just some of the things I want to bring to your attention. I felt like I got lost fast and I was really trying to be plugged in here. But I, I, as I said, I was really encouraged by the fact that like the dad connection comes in. So I have some notes for you where I'm like, oh, spell this out, cut this back. So I'm trying to kind of guide you on the course here that I think you can go on, but I think we have some work to do. And then in terms of the author bio, I 
love this author bio. It is so sweet, but I'm like, maybe too cutesy for a query letter because it is a lot of like, you know, being encouraged and which again, I love as a human being. Do I think this is query letter type of material? Potentially not. So I would just kind of trim that back. You know, again, it's perfectly fine. As all you guys know, I love to say it's perfectly fine just to say like, this is my debut novel period. You know, I'm from, you know, where you're from, this is my debut novel period. And and you can include some of the writing courses if that makes you feel like the storied author that you want to be and gives you the credentials that you want. But I'm just letting you know what's important to me. And what's important to me is just like, I kind of want to know where you're from. And I want to know if this is your debut novel, because it's all going to rest in the premise and the pages. And we want to let that sing. So those are my notes. Cece, what did you think? Yeah, absolutely. So I really wanted to emphasize the note about his motivation. To me, asking yourself what jolts your protagonist into action is really important. It's perhaps the most important question to answer in the query letter. And I had the same note. I wrote, the quest seems to be purely a favors to others. Is that intentional? It's not great in terms of having him push himself. I had the same idea, which was his mom is asleep, right? Maybe his mom is in a coma. And then maybe the Samnarti people, they tell Daniel, like, you can talk to your mom if you go into this world. We're not allowed to go there because that's where the adults are sleeping, but you can talk to your mom. So then he has a personal motivation. I am not suggesting that he can't also want to help. It's really beautiful and sweet that he wants to help, but it's just not enough. There has to be a more personal connection to the situation. Another big question I had, and this is not something I need answered in the query letter, but I really hope the pages will answer. So I'll, I'll leave this with you, is why Daniel? Have other humans done this before? Have other humans crossed into this portal? Is Daniel the first? Is it because he's chosen? Is it because his dad has magic powers and he didn't know about that? And again, do not need this in the query letter. I feel like that'll just take up space. But once we get to that stage in the pages, it really does need to be very clear because the chosen one aspect of, of all adventure novels, whether they're fantasy or not, is really important to keep the reader fully invested. So thanks for sharing this. And now, Carly, will you give us a summary of those pages? All right. So in our opening pages, we are meeting our main character. He is in his bed thinking about the holidays. We hear some sirens. We kind of go back in a little bit of a memory as well of like his past day. And it seems that the sirens of an ambulance presumably are coming to the house where his mother is and his great aunt is as well, Kate. It seems quite passive or kind of like slow. It's not like an emergency, but they seem to be like getting the mom. He's kind of like watching through the spindles of the stairs watching the mum kind of get picked up and taken away. He asks, you know, where is she going? And just going to the hospital. He's kind of like in that liminal stage between like wanting to be treated like a kid, wanting to be treated like an adult. So he's kind of asking questions, you know, is he more mature? Is he not mature? He's kind of, you know, navigating that experience here. Then we go to the hospital we kind of follow to the hospital where he is watching his mother in the hospital bed. She's quite unwell, kind of like waxy looking. They say, you know, you can go, you can go talk to her. And he's just like glued against the wall, you know, feeling very uncomfortable and very kind of just like frozen in time. And, and that's where we end. Thank you, Carly. And what did you think of the execution? All right. I found this really interesting because there was this kind of like literary quality to this where it's like, you know, this child doesn't really understand what's happening in terms of like his mother and the ambulance. And, and it's quite vague. And I was trying to figure out like, if it's vague in the sense of like, we're leaving the reader to kind of wonder what's happening versus is this going to be incredibly confusing for a middle grade reader? That's what I'm really trying to put myself in the shoes of a middle grade reader. Would they understand what's happening right now? Would they be too confused about the outcome of, you know, the ambulance showing up? I was confused as an adult reading this. So I think a middle grade reader is going to be 
quite confused. There were tons of lines I really liked, which I pointed out. There's a line that says, sitting on the top step, I pressed the side of my head hard against the staircase spindles, so my ear poked through. I like to listen from here when they thought I was in bed. I found out things they didn't tell me to my face. Things they said they would tell me when I'm older. Isn't 12 old enough? Like, I love that kind of like liminal stage of, you know, just that coming of age. I just think it's a really like beautifully captured time and in fiction a lot. And so I'm just like naturally drawn to that in a nostalgic way. And there were a lot of really specific details. Like, I dug my fingers between the tufts of the gray carpet right those like those moments where it's like so tactile and and that's the thing that this character would remember but as I said I'm super confused about what's happening with the mom he's like he almost doesn't recognize her at one point because she's so waxy looking and I was like well does he see his mom a lot I don't know I wasn't sure how sick she was before she went to the hospital I don't I don't know maybe this is just a me thing and I should have read a little bit closer or you know again maybe it's just me but there were so many lines I picked out that I really loved like The white hospital wall felt cold as I pressed against it, trying to get further away from the sight of mum who was lying there motionless. Like, I love that idea of just like pushing up against the wall, feeling its coldness. I just thought that was really, that was a really beautifully written sentence. So yeah, I don't know. I was just so like up and down about these pages because I'm like, there's so much I wanted to love, so much I wanted to understand, so much that I thought was really beautiful in that kind of coming of age sense. But I definitely don't know what's going on. (laughs) So I guess kudos to the writing on the line level. But on a structural level, I definitely think we have some understanding to because as an adult, if I'm having trouble, then I think a middle grade age reader is going to struggle here. Cece, what did you think? Yeah, I I really like that I listened to your critique first because I feel like when you said up and down, that really encapsulated how I feel. So there are some brilliant observations. The mom's head shrinking, the comment about, you know, the front door being open and the mom would mind that. The annoyance he feels towards Kate's clothes, which usually he doesn't mind, but in that moment he minds. There's just a lot of detail that is very intelligent and insightful and shows that this author knows how to get inside the psyche of a child and show the messy, complicated, razor sharp things that children, that anyone really focuses in, right? Like they call the zooming in. You zoom into a really, really small detail and that gives us so much, right? Like that gives the ability to zoom out and to share so much about someone's socio-emotional framework. So the potential is there. Actually, the delivery is there in, in various instances, but then in others, it's not. And this is what was so confusing to me. We have a 12-year-old whose mom is in an ambulance. He does not ask a single question about what happened to mom. All Kate says is mom isn't well. That is not specific enough. If he is not courageous enough. I'm not sure if courageous would be the fair word to use here, but whatever. If he weren't whatever enough to ask, his brain should still be asking. We should still see it as the reader. Why isn't he angry that Kate isn't calling him? You know, I want these messy emotions towards Kate. And if it's not anger, then it has to be someone else, some something else. Maybe it's, I don't know, gratitude that she has to deal with it and not him. Is this the first time that his mom has ever had any type of illness. This is essential so we can understand, does he have a chronically ill mom or not? It changes the story entirely. It changes his psyche entirely. It just makes it a completely different book. And there's no right or wrong answer. It's just like he needs to read like a unique person. And when you ask yourself, well, what would a 12-year-old think if he saw his mom being taken to the hospital? The answer is always, it depends. Has he ever seen anyone been taken to the hospital before? Has his mom ever been sick before? You know, like, is he the eldest child? Is he the only child? Like, there's all these things that would change the answer. And it develops character to know. So to me, there's actually a line that reads, I didn't feel scared. Not then. I was just picking up clues, working stuff out, finding where pieces fit and wishing I could hear them better. 
I flagged that and I was like, not realistic. I will challenge the author. I think that you are busy setting the scene and you didn't want to go into the messy emotions. So you made him removed. You made him detached and the emotions will come later. In my opinion, that's a mistake. In my opinion, you have to layer in the emotions now. I know it's a lot more work and it's like so hard to do to get into a child's mind like this, but it has to be done because seeing an ambulance equals having specific thoughts. Where are the specific thoughts? And active emotions, either fear or excitement, both would be ideal because he's a kid. He feels all the feels, right? So to me, we needed more active emotions. We needed interiority. And the interesting part is that you gave us a whole bunch of, of interiority in these moments I mentioned in the beginning of my analysis, right? Like, so you know how to do it. I just think you need to do it more. So I would just dial it up. That's what I would do. All right. That's it from us today, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Today's guest is an elementary school librarian in Northern California. Though thousands of books pass through her hands each month, everyone but myself is the first one written by her. She lives with her husband and two tall teenagers in a house where she arranges her books by color. It's my pleasure to welcome Julie Chavez. Julie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. It's wonderful to have you here now. 
What I love about discussing memoir on the show is whenever we do books with hooks, we're constantly telling memoirists who submit how memoir is a notoriously difficult genre to publish in, especially if you're not a celebrity and if you don't have a huge social media platform. Now, for our listeners who write memoir, you'll be extremely happy to know that Julie doesn't have a huge social media following and yet has managed to publish her memoir with Zibby Books. Now, Julie, can you take us through that process from start to finish in terms of when you began the memoir, finding an agent and selling your book? I would love to. I have a little bit of a non-traditional path to traditional publishing. So the way that it worked for me was I had finished the manuscript. So the events of the book were in 2018. In 2019, I started writing, but I didn't know what I was doing. I ended up just sort of putting out what would eventually become source material. I went to a class at Book Passage, which is one of my local indie bookstores, and had a wonderful experience there. But the author who hosted the class gave us all the dismal statistics that are exactly what you're explaining. And at that point, he mentioned the possibility of a hybrid press, which is between self-publishing and traditional publishing. You have more editorial support. However, more of the financial burden is on the author ahead of time. You don't get an advance and you are doing that in exchange for bigger royalties on the backside. So it's it's a little bit more of a, I want to make this work. And especially like you said, for memoir, it's really tricky. So I was with a hybrid press and had started doing some publicity around the book, which was at that point in a finished form. And that's how I met Zibby. She happened to be starting her publishing company at the same time that I was kind of, I wasn't looking to move at all, but it was more just that that was still a possibility with my contracts and everything like that. So made that move, but I signed without an agent. So that was sort of a backward moment for me. And it was fine. I ended up getting an agent during the process, which was also a little bit backwards because a lot of agents are not going to want to sign someone who's already signed the contract. But luckily, I was able to find an agent who was perfect for me. And I think the good thing is in doing it backwards, I understand the value of doing it forward. So I think even though it is so challenging that every rejection, every time you're querying all these pieces, they really give you a lot of solidity around what you're trying to do with your memoir and whether it's working. I love hearing about untraditional routes to publication because people tend to think there's one way to do it. And if they can't hit all those milestones along the way, then they can't be a writer. They can't get their work published. And there's there's so many different ways to do it. Now, some things that I want to unpack there. So did you even try and get an agent after you finished the memoir? Or was it like, I'm going this hybrid route and that's the way I'm going? And then you only tried to get an agent after you already had the book deal. So I was advised, and I think this was true, Brooke Warner was the coach I worked with, and she works with She Writes Press, which is the hybrid that I ended up going with. So, But she was very supportive. So when I worked with her as a coach, at the end of it, she said, I think you should still submit, but I think you're going to find it best to submit to houses that accept unagented manuscripts, because she was just saying, even if you can get a deal it's going to be smaller and that just is not going to be attractive to many agents. So I think she was helping me sort of take it on a faster route in that way. And so I got a few 
Very kind rejections from houses, including Counterpoint, I think was one of them. I mean, I have a I have a file in my email that says that's a no from us. And that's where I put all my rejections, which actually is it makes my day every time. <laughs> I'm like, well, no, yep. Love it. And so so that was kind of the way that that went, where she was sort of helping me to explore that route, but in a way that maybe wouldn't crush me. And so then I ended up with the hybrid. And I think the thing I didn't understand about agents, I thought they brokered the deal and that was it. And this is going to show I knew nothing. I was a reader first. I am a reader first. And I was a reader trying to write a book that I wanted to read. And so I didn't understand the business around it. I didn't understand a lot of the pieces around craft that I now do. So I'm fortunate in that I've learned all that, but I didn't understand the function of an agent. And I know you say this on the podcast, which I now know, this is the most important relationship you're going to have because you need that person both as someone to ground you, but also to champion you because there is so much input that you're receiving about your writing and about these things for me that were particularly tender. So I think that was the way that went. So I think once I got into the process, I understood why an agent would be helpful to me. And that's when I started shopping agents. And I got a ton of rejections there too. So yeah, I love that folder. It's a great way to enjoy your rejections, right? Do something fun when you get your rejections. A hundred percent, because it does allow you to kind of see it in a little bit more of its framework where it's, if I believe that this is the right no, then that's just pushing me to the right yes, so I can keep moving forward. Yeah, 100%. Great way to look at it. Can we talk a bit about you working with Brooke Warner from She Writes Press? Because in terms of the coaching and that, how did that look for listeners who are perhaps interested in doing something similar? I was a great candidate for coaching because I had this story and I didn't yet have the writing tools that I needed. So Brooke truly took me through. She taught me how to write memoir. She, I mean, helped me learn how to write in scene, real basics, because what I was doing was when I was saying I was trying to write a book that I wanted to read, I was really just imitating, right? Like I'm like a toddler learning to write. Oh, look at me. These are my letters. (laughs) So I think I learned with her and that was really a helpful tool for me. I'm tuned that way too, where I do best with a little bit of accountability, a little bit of a fire under me. And so to have someone that I was accountable to that we were working together, we also started working together in the spring of 2020. So that was a little bit fortuitous also because we both had this sort of available space. But I will say that was probably the best thing I could have done. Everything else that kind of came after that really started with me driving home from that class. And I wrote a blog post about it that I'll have to revisit at some point where I was driving home thinking, okay, here are all these dismal statistics. Does this matter to me? Do I want to do this? And is it something I feel like is the next right step? And the answer was yes. So then talking to Brooke helped me sort of take that investment, both time and money. So I think there was something psychological about that investment that was helpful to me that said, okay, this is something that matters to me. And that's enough of a reason to do it regardless of what the end product will be. Yeah, I love that. I think it's very important that we, when we sit down and we write something, we have it clear in our minds, if not while we're writing, then certainly afterwards, what is important to me? What do I want to achieve here? What will I view as success if 
my friends read it, is that success? If my family reads it, if I manage to put it on Amazon and a hundred strangers read it, is that success? And success looks different to every person. And I've also said that success, your idea of success is going to shift constantly. The goalposts shift constantly. In the beginning, you're like, it's cool if just one person reads it. And then after one person, it's like five people. And then it's like <laughs> New York Times bestseller, baby. You know, have you experienced that as well? Oh my gosh, I'm nodding along because yes, I have experienced that. And it is, it's a mind bender for sure, because you really are moving those goalposts. And that's exactly it. I said, okay, if one person reads this book and feels like they are seen and less alone, great, I've succeeded. But then you start to get, you're right, New York Times bestseller, I want everything. So it makes you into a little bit of a, I think the publicity game can make you into a little bit of a relentless self-promoting monster. So I'm trying to fight against that. But I have found, and one of my friends early on who I developed a relationship with was Abby Maslin, who I know has been a guest. But she had said very early on, when you're pubbing the book, you should be working on something new. And I remember thinking, well, that sounds really hellish. Why would I do that to myself? But I've started working on a novel for that exact reason, because it keeps me grounded in both the art, it keeps me grounded in this moment, and it helps me realize if I want to be a writer, then I have to write. And it distracts me from that sort of manic refreshing of what's the review? Have I gotten this publicity hit? It just, it takes all that pressure off, which is a huge help for me. Yeah. The early days of checking Goodreads reviews and checking your professional reviews, by the time this episode airs, the whole controversy on Twitter will be behind us. But for many of you, I don't know if you even saw all the drama playing out on Twitter with a whole bunch of emerging authors and someone creating a whole bunch of fake profiles to go and trash their fellow emerging authors. And it was a whole thing. And honestly, this could have been avoided if this person, instead of going on to Goodreads to check reviews, was just working on their next book, right? <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And it's so hard. I think I had friends that were ahead of me and one of them said, oh, I was checking, I was looking at my Goodreads rating and I said, why are you doing that, you lunatic? Like, cut it out. And what have I been doing? Checking mine. It's, I mean, so you really do, you have to get clear about your boundaries with yourself. But also, I mean, I'm a toddler at heart, so sometimes I just need to distract myself so I stop trying to touch the stove. <laughs> yeah, it is. Just put your hands up, step away from the stove that is Goodreads. Last question before we discuss the, the memoir itself. So you've just brought up Abby Maslin. I love reading the acknowledgments when I finish a book and I always look out for names of people that I know. And you mentioned Courtney Mom as well. Now, I'm interested in how you kind of built those communities. Were these people you knew beforehand? Did you reach out to them on socials? Because on the podcast, we're all about building community. And so many emerging writers go, but I don't know writers who've published, or I don't know people who have these connections or whatever. So how do you go about building that kind of community in an authentic way that is not you harassing authors who've published where you're like, help me do this for me, etc. So, So how did you go about doing that? That's such a good question. So to encourage those people, I also knew zero people when I started. I really did not, because I wasn't in any writing space and I didn't have a degree in English or anything like that. So I just, I didn't know any writers. The only writer I knew 
is Keely Flynn, who's mentioned in here. She was a friend who wrote for Chicago Parent Magazine. She was my sole person. So I think the way to go about it, so I really, when I had the finished manuscript through She Writes Press, that was all legwork that I did. So I just joined a couple of groups. I joined a group on Facebook that was a Bloom Where You're Planted reading group, which was built by Stephanie Howell. And it was just the loveliest community. So I joined that, saw Abby on there and reached out to her, I think through Facebook and said, would you be interested in blurbing this book? I knew then that that was an ask, but now I understand their generosity in it. And Courtney was the same. I sent her an email and said, would you have time for this? I'm with She Writes Press. And she, she very graciously responded and said, I don't know if I'll have time, but you can send it to me. So I sent her a bound manuscript and she was generous enough to provide a blurb. So that's why I especially mentioned them, because I think the most wonderful discovery is that there are so many generous authors that are willing to kind of pay it forward and who understand that that generosity is what benefited them. And they're just so gracious. It is the most gracious community. So I think the way to do it, though, is remember that it is an ask and that you need to be okay with people saying no and setting their own boundaries because who knows what they have happening in their life or work. So I think there's that goal, understanding what you're asking of someone when you are saying, hey, would you be willing to blurb this? But also very early on, I had a call with a social media consultant who was with the original publicist I worked with, and she was lovely. And she said, what are you trying to do on social media? And I said, I really am trying to connect with people. This book is about connection. I am personally a connector. That's just who I want to be. So I think having that heart in it where I think I want to get to know these people in a true way because the idea of networking makes me feel sweaty and gross. So I think just seeing that idea of how do I really reach out and think also then that puts me in a position to be that person who pays it forward. So it's sort of like I get to be part of this awesome new club and how do I be a good member of that club? Yeah. Yeah. It's the good literary citizenship again. And I think honestly, most writers I know do want to be good literary citizens. I think there are exceptions to the rule, but most of them really want to help. They do want to pay it forward. Writers just, they copy editing their fourth book while they are still promoting their third book, while they're having book clubs for their second book, while they're being asked to blurb, while they also are trying to have an income because very few writers can support themselves fully on their writing. So if a writer says no, most of the time, it's just because they do not have the capacity, but it doesn't hurt to ask. And certainly when you are asking, be the good literary citizen who is reading their work, who is screaming their praise from the rooftops, who is saying to people, I read this book, I bought this book, it's incredible, you should read it too. So in that way, you're giving back while you are doing the big ask. A hundred percent. And I did, that was a big part of this was reading Abby's book early on. So I think you're exactly right. Being a person who showing up in a little way as you can today, even if you're a person who thinks I'm not connected, I don't have anything, you're more connected than you think. And building those habits also of being a person who wants to lift up other authors, because I think most, all of us are readers. We all love books. So let's share them in that way. Strong agree. Okay, so for our listeners, we're now discussing the memoir. I'm going to read you the flap copy. So the book is called Everyone But Myself, 
funny, honest, and inspiring for readers feeling overwhelmed by life. Everyone but myself is like a best friend story of how she returned to solid ground while embracing chaos along the way. For Julie, an elementary school librarian and mother of two boys, there was no time for debilitating anxiety. Yet the terrifying aftershocks of her first panic attack left her grappling with questions about the causes of her mental health crisis and where it would lead next. What follows is a hopeful, honest account of love and loss, a husband who can't read minds, disastrous family outings, and finding a path with help from loved ones and a few key new friends to the joy of a well-lived life. Sure to resonate with mothers, spread thin by the demands of modern family life, everyone but myself offers an intimate portrait of how one woman found her way back to herself. Now, just here in this flap copy, they've positioned it to tell us who the demographic for this book is. So here we go. Sure to resonate with mothers, spread thin by the demands of modern family life. That is a heck of a huge demographic right there. Julie, let's talk about that. It is. It is a wide swath of people for sure. Thank you for reading that and thank you for sharing it. I'm just, it's so fun for me to hear the words in other people's mouths. It's such an exciting thing. I think it is. There's a huge market for this book, I think. And that's sort of this interesting interplay that at a certain point you go from my baby to this is a product. It needs to be set in a place. I tell people a lot, I am the person who lives down the street from you. I am, if I'm not like you already. So so I think because this is such a large market, when I set out to write this book, it really was when at the end of this season of time, when I had sort of come back from that edge that was very scary and just a really challenging time for me, I said to my principal at the time, this is not just something that happened to me. I think there are so many women that experience this. And especially because I am not necessarily a person on paper, or even if you met me, you wouldn't think that this is something that would have happened to me. And I've had even friends at work who have said that, who have since read the book. And they said, I don't know this, Julie. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, that's not a side of me that I'm always sharing. So I think seeing that it is a very personal story, but knowing that there will be people that will see themselves in it because all mothers, I think, struggle. I think even extending out from mothers, I have a lot of friends who are dads or primary parents or people who are caring for the people around them, who love the people around them, who find a lot of meaning and joy there, but feel fried. I mean, and that's why the cover is resonating so strongly with people because you look at that image and think, who hasn't felt like that after a day where you're like, I'm done. I can't do anymore. Can you describe the cover to our listeners? I can. It's an, a piece of art by Giselle Deckel, and she is an artist. You can find her on Instagram, but it's a woman lying face down on a chair. Her legs are on an ottoman and are hanging off of that. So she's sort of, she's poorly supported, right? It's a, it's a total lie where you fall kind of image. And that is definitely evocative because we look at that and it's just the, it's like the picture of exhaustion. Yeah. She's just collapsed where she is. And so, so was it that she designed this specifically for the book or was it that you guys saw this image and you were like, oh my God, this is the image for the book? Well, I'll tell you a funny story. I think that this book, the theme of my book is sometimes it's little process to life has been, oh, you thought you were done with that? No, you're not. So this book actually had another cover that we released, sent out, 
And then it turned out that a woman in Canada had an almost identical cover, like comically identical, same background color, and it was coming out in paperback that week. So then we went back to the drawing board and Grasa Tito, who is on the team, found Giselle's art. And she and I went through and this image was the one that spoke to us. And so then they kind of did a mock-up to make sure we liked it and then contacted her for the designs and the permissions. So yeah, it was one that I saw and I thought, that is me. Yeah, no, it's it's perfect for the book. The feeling you're describing is when I say when the universe goes, hold my beer, right? It's like, <laughs> yes. you think I've done my worst. You think that like nothing else bad can happen. Hold my beer and watch the fury that I'm about to unleash, unleash on your ass right now. So that's a hold my beer moment. Right, so... Kirkus Reviews said, Chavez's frank conversational voice infuses the text with a welcome layer of humor and intimacy. Now, I feel like this is incredibly important in memoir especially, but in so many books as well. When I see writing from emerging authors, there is this formality there. It's like people forget that when they come home and are writers, they need to park their corporate speak and they're, I'm a high profile lawyer speak, or I'm a whoever, that kind of style at the door. And remember that you are having a conversation with your reader, especially so with memoir, but even in other writing, if you're writing from the first person point of view of a 30 year old, who's whatever she does. And even if she's a lawyer, that's not how she's going to speak with her friends. That's not how she's going to speak with her reader if that is the person she's telling the story to. So I'm always saying, use contractions, take out these formal words, use slang, use a conversational tone, because that pulls the reader in close. It makes them feel like they're being confided with as opposed to lectured to. Was that something that was easy for you? Or was that part of your writing journey to learn how to establish that kind of intimacy? That is such a good question and such a good reminder. I think that it has been a journey for sure. I think I had pieces of it in the beginning, but I didn't fully understand what my writing voice was. I think it takes so much time to get there. And so I'm thankful for all the revisions. I do put a lot of that to one of my editors, Jordan Blumetti. I also, in the universe, hold my beer. I feel like I've worked with you know, 85 different people on this book. And that's just how it happens and things I didn't know. But Jordan was the first one who helped me be funny on the page, that I am a person who talks in a certain way. And I really do tend to write like I talk. And so his help with that and leaning into that, as opposed to pulling back and like you're explaining, having some sort of professional fancy distance. I mean, that's not who I am. So it was very helpful to me to start to write that way. And I think something that I do much more now is I read things aloud to myself. And that was a trick that I should have used far more early on because you will hear where it sounds stilted, where it sounds false. And yeah, you're right. Nobody wants to be lectured to. So how do I make this personal slash universal? It's by having this real settledness about, hey, we're we're having a conversation. Yeah. For our listeners, we have that episode with Estelle Erasmus in which she discovers how to find your voice. And one of the important things she says is to record yourself speaking aloud as though you're speaking to a friend. Just use your regular words that you would normally use. And that's a great way to do it. Julie, we've got time for one more question. So 
What we were talking about again on the podcast is that a memoir needs to be structured like fiction in that you need your inciting incident. You need the point of no return. You need all the action beats. You need to up the stakes as you go along. You need to have a sort of conclusive ending, etc. For you, how was the process of structuring this memoir? Did you naturally adhere to that? Were you writing essays about different things and then you had to put it together after the fact so that it adhered to this? How much was your editor involved in that and how much of that was just you finding your own way? That is an excellent question also. I think that with this, I was so, I really can't emphasize for people how little I knew anything to paraphrase Ruth from Ozark, which is a lovely show. She says, you don't know shit about fuck. And that was me. Like I knew nothing about nothing. (laughs) And so I think that I learned a lot as I went. So it was really a combination of things. The structure is interesting because this book originally was titled Little by Little. It was longer. It was told in present tense, which actually ended up making it a lot more stressful. So that's something to keep an eye on for people. I don't think I really looked at it that way, but the immediacy of it was a little bit too much, I think. And it's so hard if you're writing in present tense to have any sort of takeaway from it because you're just unable to sort of distance present Julie with that Julie. So that was something I learned. The structure for this one, this had multiple iterations. So there was that original one, and then we tried it as 26 essays. So I basically rewrote it like that. And the idea was for it to be called the anxiety library, and it would have been titled A to Z, the chapter titles. Tried it like that, didn't work. We tried kind of a hybrid model of that. And then this was really a blank page rewrite. So I think by the time I got to this one, I had learned a lot more about the pieces you're talking about, the inciting event, because truly I did not know or understand that. I had an intuitive sense of that because I had read a million books, but I just didn't, I didn't see the hidden machinery. Whereas now I can read a book and identify some of that. So all that time I was learning. So I think when I sat back down to write this, my voice was better and more defined. I was more on track But I do think my final editor, Bridie Lavero, she was really instrumental in helping get the beats where they needed to be. Because I think with memoir, you do have to write like a novel. But I do find now that I'm working on a novel, this is much harder because you just don't have enough distance from it. Even if you think you do, it is really hard to separate yourself from the events of your life, because to you, everything is important and everything needs to be included. And so I think having someone to say, I mean, there were a few chapters where I said, you can pry those from my cold, dead hands. And sure enough, they're not in the book because I was not right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, you know what? I think I always take my hat off to memoirists. I am probably by the end of my career, will have written in every single genre. Apparently that's my goal is to write in every damn genre, but I don't think that I will ever write memoir for for that exact reason. It's, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly tough. But I love how you tried every iteration, how you circled this building so many times to finally get to the point where it worked. And that's when we say nothing is wasted. You feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall, but you had to go through the whole process to find the one that worked. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Uh, P.S. I'm reading your book right now. I'm actually listening to 
if you want to make God laugh. And Bonnie Turpin, she came up and I was like, stop, I can't even with this. It's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, she's incredible. I had such incredible, incredible narrators for that book. It makes a very, very big difference. So, Julie, thank you so, so much for joining us. For our listeners, we are linking to everyone but myself on our bookshop.org affiliate page. You get it there, you support the podcast, and you support an independent bookstore. Julie, we wish you much luck with this memoir, and good luck with the novel. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. I love your podcast, so this has been a dream. Thanks again. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.